All right, we just reached Twinwood Lake. You see down there, Mom, all the way at the south end of the lake. You uh -huh. see that little... Where uh, the sun is little, shining? Right, exactly, where the sun is shining. That's where the creek you opens get, up into the lake. Want to get a picture of that? Um, yeah, I will I'll get a picture of that. And so the cabin that Marvin Gabriel lived on was directly straight ahead, somewhere in those woods. When he disposed of Wayne Davis's body, this lake was frozen over. It was February. Oh, my. Yes. So he would have... How did he get it in the lake? Here's the thing. He This would have been frozen. He walked probably right across the lake. <gasps> yes. Can you believe that shit? With See, a body. so his cabin would have been way down there on the, near the south end a little bit or halfway. And it's up on a hill. So if you if you can see those, those you can't see past the trees, but those uh -huh. houses are on a hill a little bit. He would have walked down the hill. There's a boathouse down there behind the house. I can, uh, I can see the boathouse yes. there almost. It's yep. like the, the, the sun is not in our... Favor in our today, favor, to, yeah. yeah. But that would be exactly where he did. He would have walked from the cabin across the ice, across mm -hmm. over there. And that's how he did it. Amazing. Yeah, it is. It's a pretty lake. It's supposed to be really good for fishing. Oh, Lord, please bring me shelter. Please bring me shelter from yonder storm. way out of here because it was to get back here it's very remote lock everything up in case we encounter anyone on the way there was a guy that was drinking was he walking with a beer down the road and waste basket I don't know this would not be an area I would want to be in um, remotely and alone this is um Yes, because it's yeah, it's very remote, very remote. Just follow it, right? We we passed the yeah. Another car comes this way, we're trapped because we can't go through the trees to get the hell out of here. Yeah. The well, not too much. Um, the the tree is beautiful. The color is beautiful back here right now. We're but you could be trapped in November, beginning of November. Yes, you could be trapped back here. This is deliverance country, is what it is. Well, the thing is, the road isn't very wide, and the trees are kind of tight knit. So, if like I said, if another car was coming this way, it would force us to stop, and we would have no way to turn about. Yeah, it's, which is very scary. There are sort of like makeshift pullovers in a couple areas, but can you tell? My watch is saying to me, "Breathing time." <laughs> her Apple Watch is telling her to calm down. You need to take, take a, a few breath. breaths. <laughs> well, okay, that's true. Gotta love that. I like it that I I rope you into all these things, and you're okay with going. <laughs> According to the autopsy report, Wayne Davis was last seen on or about February 13, 1997. On July 4, 2002, almost five years to the day that Rachel Timmerman was found in Oxford Lake, Wayne's body was found floating in Twinwood Lake by someone who reported it after the guy that I spoke to who alleged that he had found it first. We know Marvin Gabrion had a penchant for duct tape, and the same telltale tape was found around Wayne Davis's mouth. Unlike Rachel Timmerman, though, it also covered his nose. The report notes that he likely died from asphyxia. There were remnants of duct tape found around one of his boots, suggesting that his feet had also been bound. 
and remnants of chain were rusted to the clothing on his body. In this case, though, there were no blocks attached. It appeared that the chains may have broken, which would be consistent with someone having snagged the body and pulled it to the surface. Based on the multiple layers of clothing on the body when it was found, it appears that Wayne was either outside when he encountered Gabriel, or was at least dressed for an outside activity. So did Marvin go out and grab Davis up somehow, incapacitate him, bind him up and then drag him across the frozen Twinwood Lake? Or did Wayne end up at Gabriel's cabin for some reason and that's where it was done? The friend of Wayne's who had gone to his house the day before she was to drive him to jail to start serving his DUI charge had found Marvin Gabriel there working on a car. Did Marvin somehow get to him there and then later transport his body to Twinwood Lake? We may never know. But my source believes that he and a friend may have been at the cabin one night when Wayne was inside and based on the time frame it very well could have been a night around the time that Wayne Davis was killed. We showed up. We were on our way to Wisconsin. So we showed up out to the cabin. And like I said, I was always a little leery of them guys. So I stayed in the car, stayed back for a minute. Then I got out of the car and started to walk up there. Came out of the house. His face was white as sheet. We went back to the car, and he's like, I, I didn't shut the door till we exited the driveway, because I didn't want him to know I was even there, because they were smoking crack and getting crazy. Is I think three three of them maybe was in there. I, I don't know. Nothing was ever mentioned, but I can't see him doing anything crazy without around. And I never knew that I left shortly after that. I mean, we did our little trip, our little run to Milwaukee, and then back over to uh, White Cloud. And then I left the state and didn't look back. Because Marv was getting crazy, and he was going to kill somebody. So you literally left the state because of how things were getting around here? Well, no, there was some other things. I got into some pretty deep trouble, and I was forced out. Police actually forced me out. And uh, I went to trade school, and so I went professional. All these guys all stayed behind and became what they became. Actually, I don't know why he went over there. He probably went over to get some pie. No. <laughs> uh, pulled in there got out, he was in there for a while, and I got out and started to walk in there, came out all white in the face, and so he's like, he's going crazy in there, he's going to kill somebody, and got in the car, and I remember I, I went and shut the door until we hit Basswood. Because you didn't want him to hear it? Yeah, I didn't want him to hear two doors. I didn't want him to know I was there. So you were that uncomfortable with him at that time? I was that uncomfortable with Marvin my whole life. <laughs> but you don't know who else was in the house or what he was, who, who he was referring to wanting to kill or anything? I was under the impression it was, it was Davis. Oh. He wouldn't tell me nowadays if I talked to him because I'm an outsider. I'm not a 
I'm not an insider no more. What gave you the impression it was Davis? Saying that, he said that name. Said the name? Yeah. But you got to understand, too, there's, I think, three branches of Davises in that town. <clears throat> so, and I don't think they're related, actually. So what exactly did he say about Davis? He just said he was going to kill him. He's nuts. He's going nuts. He's smoking crack. They're getting all crazy. So uh, as far as you knew, there was someone named Davis, and you weren't sure which Davis, in the cabin at that time with him? Yeah. He was there. Okay. Marvin, I think uh, they're... And then that guy. But at that night that you went to the cabin, they were all there inside with someone named Davis? Yeah. Okay. And so when came out, he just looked freaked out. And is there anything specific he said as far as, other than a Davis being in there, um, what ha what was going on in there that made him upset? No, just that they were smoking crack and getting totally crazy. Marv was uh, nuts all enough without smoking uh, cocaine. I don't know as much about Robert Allen, and that's likely because he was essentially homeless, and his going missing had gone undetected for some time. The Michigan State Police report that I have says it was not initiated until details about Gabrion's homicide investigation were learned, and this was some two years after Allen had not been seen in the soup kitchens and other places that he frequented in Grand Rapids. Which Marvin spent a lot of time in. I, I tracked a lot of stuff down. That's where he met Robert Allen. That's where he, he rented a room at some point. He was sleeping in a, in a on a roof at one point on Division, and he was um, in a a shed at one point. He was staying at a hotel. I just got a police report yesterday where he was staying in a hotel over, gosh, where was it? Montague, I think. And he had stayed for a week in this hotel, and it's over in the boonies by a lake. And they had asked him to leave because he was acting strange. And the maid went to the room later to see if he had left, and he took all the bedding. He took the pillow and the blankets and the washcloths, and he took a fan. He took stole a bunch of shit. And then I'm thinking, why did he take the bedding? Was he, he had like a thousand bucks on him at the time. So did he take the bedding because there was like blood on it and he did something on it? Or did he just take it because he was being an asshole? You know, I'm... It was in the ladder. The asshole? <laughs> yeah. At first I thought, well, maybe he took it because he was going to know, he knew he was going to be sleeping outside and, um, you know, but then I thought, well, he had a thousand, over a thousand bucks in his wa wallet at the time. So he didn't, he could have gone somewhere else. But this was like a little... Side of the road, shitty motel, you know, one of those strip ones that's just like seven or eight rooms, you know. Um, and I can't understand if he was moving around because he was hiding out from the cops always from the last thing he did or what, what the deal was. He's probably, sounds like you're smoking crack because that's how you asked me to smoke crack. Oh, and they found a bunch of pills on the floor. He left like a bunch of pills on the floor. Did you know him to be a pill popper? Oh, yeah. They would definitely, they would do anything to get high. Marvin selling that Chrysler New Yorker to the man in Fort Wayne, Indiana, under the name of Robert Allen, is where this report begins, with a note that says when they checked with the Indiana Bureau of Motor Vehicles, they learned that someone named Robert Allen had applied for a learner's permit in that state on February 25, 1995. Five months later, he applied and received an operator's license.
By the time family was contacted, none of them had heard from Allen for four or five years. The report notes that Mr. Allen was born in Hopkins, Michigan, and both of his biological parents were deceased. He'd been married from 1984 to 1990, and Mr. Allen was known to have hitchhiked all over the United States, but he did not have a strong family connection. He was described as a loner type and had spent some time in a mental health facility in Kent County, Michigan. He had also had numerous contacts with police over the years. A clinical supervisor at St. Mary's Heartside Clinic identified a photo when it was shown to her, and she believed that she had last seen Mr. Allen in May of 1995. She remembered him because he was a frequent visitor of the clinic. In 1991, he had an arrest for criminal sexual conduct, second degree, and was on probation when he went missing. His probation officer last saw him on May 9, 1995, when he was discharged from probation. Mr. Allen received Social Security Disability benefits for a mental health disorder and had no driver's license or vehicle. His only means of transport was public, and he was known to visit the homeless shelters in Grand Rapids. Marvin Gabrion was known to frequent some of these same places. Once he was arrested, it took the FBI and multiple law enforcement entities across the country quite a while to unravel the tangled web of deception that Marvin had woven over many state lines. In the end, he stole multiple identities, obtained driver's licenses in many different names, and bought and sold cars and other items all across the country. Because he had around $1,800 in $100 bills on him when he was taken into custody, police also thought that he may have been selling drugs across state lines with the help of other family members. FBI reports from the court filings have documented calls by family members to known drug associates in Kentucky, where Marvin had apparently obtained a temporary car tag and a license plate. He had a Virginia temporary tag on the car that he was driving when he was arrested, under a name that he had stolen from the man I told you about in an earlier episode, the man who had interviewed with Gabriel for a job that he had found listed in the newspaper. Marvin was a busy guy while he was on the run, moving from con to con, and all the while he was keeping in touch with his family. Once police had him in custody and it was clear that he wasn't getting out, his con changed to manipulation, manipulating Rachel's family, the police, and jailers. Meanwhile, his case moved through the court system. He was tried, and after that, he filed many appeals. For family and friends of the victims, it must have been torture to keep seeing his name pop up in the news clips year after year, as Gabriel fought his death penalty conviction with every crazy breath he had in him. Of course, this was to be expected given how he acted during the trial. The judge had to eventually deny him the right to fire his lawyers and defend himself due to his constant erratic behavior and frequent court disruptions. At one point, he punched his own defense attorney in the face right in front of the jury. He committed dozens of major violations while he was housed in the Calhoun County Jail and filed repeated bizarre motions full of obscene language and weird accusations. He called his lawyer and the judge Satan and Hitler. While incarcerated, Marvin hasn't exactly been a model inmate. The following is a recreation from a transcript of him making a call while pretending to be a federal court employee 
to try and get himself moved. For English, press 1. Espanol, dos. Please enter your PIN. You have $20. Please enter the number you wish to call. You have 40 minutes. You have reached the Federal Correction Institution in Milan, Michigan. If your call is in reference to an inmate, press 1, now. If your call is not in reference to an inmate, and you know the three-digit extension number of the person you are trying to reach, dial it now. I'm sorry, I did not hear your selection. Please re-enter your selection now. If you're calling from a touch-tone phone, you may enter the extension at any time. If you don't know the extension, press 411 for a directory. Otherwise please stay on the line and an operator will be right with you. This call is subject to monitoring and recording. Mylan, inmates. Yeah, I'm trying to uh, talk to the warden's office. You called the unit for inmates. Uh, this is the federal court. FCI Milan, speaking, can I help you? Uh, I'm trying to reach the warden's office. Is this a call in reference to an inmate? This is Ron Weston of the federal court. I'm sorry, what's that? Ron Weston of the federal court in Western District, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh-huh. I need to talk to the warden's office. The warden's office? Yes. Is this in reference to an inmate? Uh, it's in reference to moving an inmate. The warden's not here today. Can I direct you... Can you you take a message? Can I direct you to the ISM department? Who? The supervisor of the ISM department. ISM, what does that mean? Systems. They're the movement people. Oh, they move inmates, like, from jail to... Uh, okay. Okay, hang on a second, all right? Records, this is Laura. Can I help you? Yes, uh, this is Ron Weston of the Federal Court in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay. And we're trying to find out whether or not you have a problem with having a certain inmate who has been at your facility before. He's a federal inmate, uh, placed back at your facility before the judge enters an order. Gabriel? Yeah. I tell you what, I don't make these final decisions. Can I, um... Can you take down Judge Bell's fax number and figure it out? Just put something into facts, send it to him, whether he can or can't be there, because he doesn't want to put a court order in the FTC unless you want him there. Okay. Okay, it's 616-456-2538, and it's Judge Bell. Judge Bell? Robert Holmes Bell. Right. And is that for permanent custody or temporary custody? Temporary at the FTC or the unit that you want. Temporary custody until designated at a further facility? Just holding for the court. Okay, is that his phone number of the fax? That's his fax number. Uh, can I have his, um, your number? 456. Hold on. 456. 2021. He wanted you to just fax something on paper to him. Take it to him before he enters the court order. 
Okay, let me go talk to my warden and I'll get right back to you. Okay, thank you. Okay, have a good day. In the end, Marvin Gabrion was found guilty. And what followed were years and years of appeals, the most significant of which being his efforts to appeal the death sentence. His attorneys asserted that he was unable to assist them until they could restore his competency with medication. They pointed to his bizarre behavior before and during the trial, noting, quote, His peculiar conduct has continued unabated in the 15 years since he was sentenced to death. His mentally ill conduct did not begin with the events described at trial. Mr. Gabrion behaved erratically for decades prior to Ms. Timmerman's death. The appellate attorneys argued that the trial attorneys did not insist on a hearing to test the conclusions of the government witnesses, which had concluded that he was competent and malingering, even though some bizarre behavior was noted. Essentially, they believed that he was faking a lot of his symptoms, at least during the time of the trial. Michigan's Constitution does not allow the death penalty, but the side of Oxford Lake where her body surfaced is in the Manistee National Forest, making it a federal crime. The Court of Appeals today ruled the jury should have been allowed to consider the fact that Michigan does not allow the death penalty when deciding if Gabrion should be sentenced to death or life in prison. Why don't they just do it and be done with it? Do what? Put him to death. I'll go down and watch. Relatives of Gabrion's victims were baffled by today's U.S. Appeals Court ruling to toss out the death penalty over a mistake in court. I was afraid it was going to be for him punching his lawyer. I thought that's why he was going to get off. Not because of Judge Bell making a mistake. I would have never guessed that. The appeals court ruled the local federal judge should have allowed defense attorneys to tell the jury that Gabrion could not have gotten the death penalty if it were a state case. And what about the look in his eye? I'm sure you've seen it, right? Yes. Yes. He tried that on me. Uh, and I, I just looked right back at him. And then I, then I said... On the record, um, the record should reflect Mr. Gabrion is staring at me and has stared at me for the last two hours and is having no effect whatever upon me. Relatives of his victims are certain that Gabrion is gloating in prison. He is evil. I kind of like the idea that he was sitting there knowing someone was planning his death so he could feel a little bit of what he put Rachel through. It seems to me that they're overthinking it, doesn't it? Aren't they overthinking it? Uh, the jury decided. The jury is the only one that's capable of giving the death penalty. It wasn't the judge. It wasn't an appeals court judge. It was the jury. There were two very specific reasons why the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals decided to give Marvin Gabrion a new sentencing phase of his trial. We knew. We knew what, we knew what Marvin had said. We knew what Marvin had done. Through the attorneys did a phenomenal job through the penalty phase to get us to where we were able to make the decision we made. One of the reasons Gabrion will get a new sentencing phase is because the judge ruled Gabrion's attorneys could not stress to the jury that Michigan does not have the death penalty. If Rachel Timmerman's body had been found less than 250 feet away, Gabrion would have been tried in a state court and never would have faced the death penalty. We all knew that there was not a death penalty in Michigan, and had there been, it had been years and years that anything had done like that. The other concern was that the judge didn't specifically stress to the jury that they had to be sure beyond a reasonable doubt that Gabrion deserved death. I knew when I left that courtroom it was the hardest thing I had ever done to sign my name to that line to, to have somebody put to death. 
And as far as the new sentencing phase he's going to get with the new jury? I don't know how they'll do just the sentencing phase. I would think that would be very hard for a jury to come in and, and only hear those few days of testimony that we heard um, after we'd already made our decision based on the penalty phase. I, I wouldn't want to be that jury to have to make that decision. The appeals court ruling made it very clear that his guilt is not in doubt at all. Now the next step in this case will be to see if the U.S. Attorney's Office decides to pursue the death penalty again against Gabrion, and then a new jury will decide his new fate. Higher courts overturned the death penalty, then reinstated it. Do you expect him ever to be put to death with the way the system is right now? I wouldn't give it better than a 50-50 chance. I think it's more likely he'll spend the rest of his life in prison. I believe Mr. Gabriel should be put to death because of what he did to my daughter, Rachel. He put her in handcuffs and chains. He chained cement blocks to her. He wrapped her entire head with duct tape. He put her on a boat and drug her out into the middle of Oxford Lake. And then he threw her in. If that doesn't deserve the death penalty, what does? Michigan doesn't have the death penalty, but the area of Oxford Lake, where Rachel Timmerman was found, was technically on federal land, inside the Manistee National Forest. That's why he sits on death row today. But this was a bit of a gamble for the prosecutors, because in order for the jury to find Gabriel guilty, they would have to prove Rachel died on federal land, meaning that she drowned and was not dead when she went into the water. If she was killed elsewhere and dumped into Oxford Lake, the death penalty would then not apply. Although they were ultimately successful, there were differing opinions by experts in their field as to whether Rachel did actually drown. The thing with drowning is that it's what Dr. Stephen Cole, forensic pathologist, called in his book an autopsy of exclusion, meaning one where you first must exclude all other possibilities. On the stand, Dr. Cole could not state with certainty that Rachel was not strangled or suffocated on state property and then dumped into the lake on the federal side, but he said that drowning was the most likely cause. The prosecution only had to point to a couple things to bolster that notion for the jury. You don't have to bind and tape the mouth of someone who is already dead. You could just toss them in the lake. Dr. Cole also noted that he found no evidence of strangulation, no petechial hemorrhages, and no fractured neck bones, things that you would generally expect to find in the case of a manual strangulation. He did, however, concede that it would be possible to place a towel around Rachel's neck, choke her with that, and that would avoid creating the aforementioned signs of strangulation. Gabriel's defense attorney, Paul Mitchell, pointed out that if she drowned, wouldn't you expect to see mud in her lungs and her throat and her nasal passages from the mucky water? Daniel Spitz, the son of world-renowned medical examiner Dr. Werner Spitz, was hired by the prosecution to review the materials associated with the death of Rachel Timmerman, as well as the testimony and autopsy report of Dr. Stephen Cole. While he did agree that her death was homicide, he wrote, quote, It is my opinion that there is nothing in the available forensic evidence upon which a competent forensic pathologist could conclude that Ms. Timmerman died as the result of drowning. 
he further noted, quote, Dr. Cole's testimony at Mr. Gabrion's trial was that Rachel Timmerman's likely cause of death was drowning. That is not Dr. Cole's conclusion in the autopsy report. At trial, he did not testify as to any new facts or additional information that would have caused him to change his opinion. The only information upon which Dr. Cole could have based the opinion that he expressed at Mr. Gabrion's trial appears to have come from a hypothetical question asked by the government which assumed that Ms. Timmerman was seen alive and unbound on the shore of Oxford Lake. Well, yeah, that's kind of an important point. Multiple witnesses did see her there alive, and when you couple that with the timeline and the tape and the handcuffs and the blocks, what you have is a very educated autopsy of conclusion that suggests she wasn't strangled elsewhere and then dumped in the lake. She was most likely alive when she reached the lake. So to me, Dr. Cole's conclusions were strong, and it looks like the jury agreed. I actually came by Rachel Timmerman's case and the cases of the other missing men attributed to Marvin Gabrion when I posted on a Facebook page about covering the case of Rick Atwood, who will be the subject of next season's case. It's turning out to be a little harder to get people to talk to me on that one, certainly on the record, but I've done a few interviews now, and my original source was able to speak a little to both cases, which is why I decided to post the Timmerman case first. Did Rick hang out with Marvin, generally, like, or was it just an in-passing type deal? Well, we hung out from the time, and we all did. We were all at the same parties. I don't understand. I mean, Marvin was a troublemaker. He was like, he would have been known to, to local cops for sure, right? I mean, they had his number even then. He was a, he was a mess up. And these cases have a few things in common. First, the location. You may have noticed that most of my cases take place in the same geographical area. Nuevo County was described beautifully in the color of night by the Timmermans. It is a bit of a fearful land. All you have to do is ask the locals. They'll tell you that they have more than their fair share of tragic deaths and missing people to contend with. Both cases involve drugs and some of the same local actors are mentioned in both case files, including the Gabrians as well as some same informants on the case. This makes sense. When something bad happens in a small community, if someone gets robbed or goes missing, police pay a visit to these local actors and informants to either see what they know or see what they might have done. My source knew the Gabrians well because he also sold drugs and ran in the same circles. And he also knew Rick Atwood. He was one of the first people to contact me about Rick's case, and many of the details that he mentioned ended up bearing out when I got the police report. One of the people who came to me early on about Rick's case told me that he thought one or more of the Gabrians may have been involved with Rick's death. And then I learned that Rick moved in the same circles as the Gabrians and they both sold drugs. I also got the name of someone who had allegedly told my source that he was told by one of the Gabrians that they were involved in Rick going missing, at least as far as body disposal. So, he's telling me that, um that 
Ricky got into some trouble with uh, the black mob out of Chicago, and he owed a few thousand dollars. And the mar took care of it. And the pig pen that used to be behind the uh, house was where the body was disposed of with the pig. That name, interestingly, also appeared in a witness statement regarding Rachel Timmerman's case. Seventeen days after Rachel's body was found, this same witness is talking to police about Wayne Davis's disappearance. He emphatically stated that he believed Marvin Gabriel killed Wayne Davis to prevent him from testifying in Rachel's rape trial. He described Marvin as having always been abnormal and believed that he had killed before. While he would not give them any names, this is someone who told my source that Marvin may have been involved in Rick's disappearance. At the time, he only told police that he based his feelings about Marvin having killed before on his behavior and that he was always burying something and he was always hiring people to dig holes. So this very witness was someone that I was initially told that I should contact about Rick's disappearance because of what he'd told my source that he had been told by the Gabrians. But hearsay is a hell of a thing. There's a lot of backtracking and unraveling and trying to locate sources of something said, which, in the end, they may or may not even cop to. Now, you remember that witness who had run into Marvin Gabriel at the convenience store after Rachel was murdered, and he mentioned that he had just got rid of his girlfriend? To which Marvin replied that he'd just gotten rid of his girlfriend, too, by chaining her up with cement blocks and tossing her into a lake? Well, that witness showed up in the Rick Atwood police report, too. He alleges that he was the last person to see Rick alive before he left to Grand Rapids to pick up some dope, according to him. In his interview, the Gabrian's name came up at least once also. I hope to unwind all of that next season and maybe get some answers about what really happened to Rick Atwood. Because from what I'm seeing so far, this case doesn't have anything to do with the Gabrians. Although I guess it's not surprising that people would think that someone that could get rid of bodies so easily might be responsible for all of the missing people in the area. But it looks like this case is going in an entirely different direction. If you're out there listening and you have information about Rick's case, you can find me under Jenny Decker on Facebook, or you can go to the Down and Away Facebook page and message me there. If you've been listening from season one and ever said to yourself, I really like the music that Jenny picks out for these podcasts, you can find links to the music and their credits in my show notes. Most of what I use comes from freemusicarchive.com. Kulla is one of my favorite artists that I have discovered there. That's C-U-L-L-A-H. You can find his music on iTunes and Amazon. I encourage you to support independent musicians when you hear something you like. Now, please spare a thought for Rachel, Baby Shannon, Wayne Davis, Robert Allen, and John Weeks. While you listen to Kulla's The Fallen. See you next season. I see the falling, falling. I see them all.
Dream my dreams. Dream my dreams.